Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Our traders on the desk are Pina Jerry and Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman and Guy Dami. Tonight on Fast, markets take another tumble as the trade wars heat up once more. We take a look at the key levels that could set the tone for stocks through the end of the year. Plus, the cost of the looming tariffs could extend far beyond just this week's market breakdown. The desk dives into the true cost of the trade war on the economy and the consumer. And one bright spot amid today's uh, sea of red, Tesla, named a must-own auto stock by Piper Jaffrey. Can shares really break out to new highs? We start off with breaking news on Alphabet. Deidre Bose has got all the details. Deidre. Hey, Melissa. Larry Page stepping down as Alphabet CEO. Sundar Pichai becomes CEO of both Google and Alphabet. Now, in terms of the day-to-day, I'm likely to see major changes, which is why you may not be seeing a lot of change in Alphabet stock after hours. Now, under the Google umbrella, remember, Pichai ran the established businesses, advertising, cloud, Android software, devices. Now, he has been CEO since August of 2015. And since then, Alphabet stock has certainly soared relative to the broader markets, but it has underperformed its big cap tech peers. Now, since the company's financial restructuring, remember, split from into Alphabet and Google, Alphabet became the place where the company's moonshot projects have lived. That includes Waymo, self-driving cars, to drones, internet balloons, and its healthcare projects. So perhaps, guys, the question now is what happens to those money-losing initiatives? Will we see more financial discipline under Pichai and CFO Ruth Porat, who comes from Wall Street and has been known for more financial discipline? As Page steps down, does he also step away from those moonshots as well? That division, again, loses a lot of money, and those traditional businesses like advertising pay for them. Melissa? All right, Deidre, thank you. Deidre Bosa, I've been tweeting over this news uh, when it broke, I don't know, half an hour ago or so. Karen, what do you make, what do you make of this? I, well, I think it, it shouldn't be a huge change. I mean, this is a very big, my, my largest position, actually. I'm not really concerned about this. I do think Deidre talked about maybe more financial um, Discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we started to see this when they brought in Ruth Porat, which already goes back four years. And then we wanted to see more clarity, and so then they split into two. And then we actually wanted to see a little movement on the balance sheet, and they addressed it. They could have done a lot more, but they started to address it. So I think they're doing all the right things. It just shows how important having a good succession plan is. Versus, well, like, get to something like Tesla, you think, uh, what is the succession plan there? Right. But I think they've done a, a very good job. And I, as an investor, I feel like this is going to be not very much of a change. I think five years ago, seven years ago, I think this is a much bigger deal. I think it's actually, on the margins, a positive thing. I think sometimes you need a fresh set of eyes. And to Karen's point, Ruth Port came in. This stock, 13, 14, 15, stock meandered for a long time. She came in, I think the stock was either side of $600. It's never looked back for all the reasons Karen just cited financial fiscal responsibility. And I think a new set of eyes is probably a good thing. Them walking away, I don't think it's negative. I think, if anything, it's positive. 17% EPS growth trades at 23 (laughs) times forward earnings. Seeming, listen, I know it's not a blockbuster of a stock, but you look at it, slow and steady wins the race for Google. And I think we're in a whisper of all-time highs. We actually might be making all-time highs as we speak. Kara Swisher made a couple of great points on Twitter, as she normally does, um, that Pichai was already in charge of Google and YouTube for some time. Um, that Page and Brand have been sort of AWOL yeah. with their own interests, and they also still control the company. I mean, de facto through their stock. It's a dual-class structure. 
So they still have control effectively of the company. Great points. And it makes you wonder whether some of this is uh, you know, evolved out of the politics that the company is facing. There are certainly are headwinds on the regulatory side. Um, there's enormous, I think, tailwind to their core business. And, you know, Karen talked about that. I mean, the, the control of costs, whether it's through, through the tax costs or the CapEx, these are things that in the last three or four quarters of investors have become quite, you know, quite comfortable with what the company's been doing. If anything, look, the secular business is alive and well. Uh, Google Cloud is, is growing and is going to be a major business. You worry about the regulatory. Maybe this is the guy. You know, maybe this is the guy to take them out of the limelight because they are the founders. They are the icons. They are, look, they are major, major players in the politics of Silicon Valley and what goes on beyond there. And I think maybe this changes uh, the tact a little bit. And maybe this, as the CEO position, this opens up the opportunity to really go into a whole a focus of where they really are because they are spending money in certain places that not everybody's always all that excited about. So the reality is, are they going to be spending more and putting more into you? You brought up cloud. I think that is where yeah. they need to go. And I think they're moving in that direction. I think they got the right CEO. And when you talk about financially, fiscally, their, their spending habits and everything, that's something I think that much, Ruth might be able to step up now and really put in more. You mean a dividend? Well, yeah, well, maybe. Maybe something like that. I mean, think say. of all this. We talk about free cash flow with just about every big company that we talk about on this desk all the time. And what are they doing with that? And obviously, a lot of acquisitions over time, all that type of thing. But yes, something like that, Mel, which I think would make a lot of sense. Look at how well that's worked for the Apples of the world and the Microsofts of the world forever. I mean, that's something they should do. So I have a question now. Mm. Are well, we you, going, you do that. Are we going to... I have many questions <laughs> yeah. at many points in time, but one particular question at this moment in time. And that would be, are we going to look back at this change of leadership and think this was to Alphabet what Satya Nadella was to Microsoft? I... I, I don't think so, and here's no. why. I, I don't okay. think Google needs to do what Microsoft needed to do. And again, there was already some momentum behind that change at, at Microsoft, but Microsoft's moved to the public cloud. Everything that they've done to not only compete, but maybe wrestle some of this away from Amazon and, and Google, uh, I think, has been well on its way, as we've all talked about, towards this transformation. It seems like it, uh, but I don't think it's the same thing. I don't think so either, and, and, and it's because of the fact of where has he come from versus where Satya Nadella was at Microsoft. And... Let's not forget, Google's a fine company. Alphabet's a fine company. Microsoft was not. And they, they needed somebody that's going to transform them from where they were to where they are now. They hired the right guy. I think this gentleman now can step in there. He and Ruth Porat together can build this into a much bigger company in a lot of ways, focused on cloud. But that won't be the only focus. They still have all these other areas, all these other verticals that they can bring in money. Well, I'm thinking of the regulatory weight off the back of the company. I mean, that, that well, could really unleash some... Yeah. That Value would be there. good. I don't think yeah. we're going to get clear that, that for a while. I mean, I think yeah. to your point, those two could potentially, uh, you know, them stepping back could ease things a little bit. Remember, they didn't show up. They chose not to uh, go to Congress. Right. We'll see if, it, you know, now that it's not up to them whether or not they would send someone. But, I mean, just look at the France, you know, the Fran- what started our tariff uh, The spat, digital tax. Right, was the digital tax here. So we got not a lot of clarity for a while. That's why the stock isn't higher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to Pete's point, I mean, I don't want to say it was floundering Microsoft, but it wasn't doing particularly well. Yeah. I mean, it was sort of treading water with the broader market. He walks in and the stock is probably, you know better than I, the stock is probably more than doubled under his leadership, which is pretty significant. If we have a conversation about IBM six months from now, we can have that same conversation if this is a watershed moment. But with that said, Piper Jaffrey just initiated today, $1,500 price target, as did Citi. $1,500 price target. You know, I think on the margins, this is a positive thing. The, the regulatory aspects, these two guys stepping down, I think if nothing else, 
probably alleviates some of the pressure, not all of it. Yeah. So I think if, if you're looking for a reason, if you need one more reason to buy the stock, I think this is as good as any. All right, let's turn out to the broader markets. With all three major indices closing in the red for the third day in a row, check out the Dow falling more than 280 points, posting its worst day since October. So is the market rally just taking a breather, or is this a sign of more pain ahead? Yesterday, you guys were all sort of cautious on where we were, and here we are now. Well, we had, we had a, I thought, a, a, a thoughtful conversation about the timing of when a deal could get done. And I think we all felt that a deal could get done, but it doesn't have to get done tomorrow. And boom, today we get some announcement on timing. Now, we don't know that that's going to be the timing, but the fact of the matter is that President Trump thought it was advantageous to sit across the pond and say, you know what, I can wait till after the elections. Whether he can or whether he cannot, um, I think this continues to be something that hangs over the market. When you consider the movement that the market had had um, going into this period, and, and the level of complacency that we talk about all the time on this desk, it's not a surprise that the market's reaction was. But um, again, you can see the market closed on its highs of the day and came yeah. back from a significantly lower print earlier. It's funny. I just I just was in shock because I, you know, it's a Why? it's a holiday season in that that <laughs> yeah, um, whole, whole you know season. Ebenezer Scrooge he, see, he sees all those Christmas ghosts uh-huh. and and okay. I mean I got to give it away but Joe Lavore I haven't seen him in forever yeah. Joe I, you walked well, you just like, did I was like yeah, shocked yeah, yeah. 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 not only has he goodbye the guest but he brought in yeah. 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 I haven't seen him that's a long shot I'm the man guy I'm the man buddy you know you got to book me early you know no I mean look I'll say it again I think President Trump is playing I think he's playing a little stock market here. I think he has a lot of he feels he has enough equity in the tank where he can take some short term pain in December, January, maybe do something in early spring that will set him up well for the election in November 2020. I mean, if if I were him and if I would use the market as the one indicator for my reelection, that's the way I would play it. Wait till the spring, step on the gas then and then homeward bound for the election in 2020, which is why I think <laughs> you could have a very painful December. I think he will absolutely <clears throat> go through with these tariffs on the 15th if he's forced to. Yeah, it's house money at this point. It's house, it's, money. Yeah, it's house money. And he has said that, up. by the way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But we have to ask here, what is the true cost of the trade war if it drags on another year or even longer. Let's bring in Joe Lavornia, mm-hmm. the aforementioned Thank you. chief economist Thank you. at the Americas and the Texas, also a CNBC contributor. Joe, great to have you with us. Thank you, Melissa. Um, it's fine that President Trump doesn't think he needs a trade deal to win the election, but he needs the economy. And so I guess the question is, the sure. longer tariffs drag on on the economy and, and to the extent that new tariffs <clears throat> go into place, what is a cumulative impact of that? Yeah. I don't believe the tariffs are a big deal. And also, I hate the trade war. This is a negotiation. It might be a tough negotiation. I don't like war. I think it's sort of like belittling to what war actually is, of course. But the reason I think it's not a big deal is twofold. Number one, if you look at the total size of the tariffs, it's about $600 billion. And people compare that to nominal GDP, but actually you should compare it to total output. You should include business to business. Because some of these tariffs are, are, you know, aren't final goods and services. They're at business uh, costs, effectively. And that's about a $40 trillion economy. So you're looking only at about 1.5% of the total economy, assuming everything was implemented. It's not a lot. It's really all been about the Fed. And the reason the equity market's where it is is because the Fed prudently pivoted and cut rates and housing and construction are turning up. That's why even if phase one gets done, and I can't read the president's mind, I'm not going to be a mind reader in general, even if, the, even if the, uh, phase one is done, it'll still be a higher level of tariffs than where we were in the summer when everybody was worried about the equity market and the economy. And for 2020, I'm actually quite bullish on growth. I mean, you've got 1.5% job growth, 
and productivity is running at one and a half. I don't know why we can't do three percent growth next year. And the unemployment rate is going to move down to three percent. Joe, you've, I mean, to your credit, you've actually been very bullish during periods in the last six months when I'm hearing a lot of people talk about recessions. So let me give you the pushback, though, that when you paint that rosy picture, don't people talk about capex and talk about business spending and talk mm-hmm. about business confidence and leading indicators? It's not so much about the tariffs. Every CEO is not reinvesting <clears throat> in their business. Every country around the world is is curtailing a lot of you know both uh, trade activity, trade velocity sure. has slowed down. That's true. However, the sector that's arguably the most sensitive to capex manufacturing has been in recession, and that to me is turning. It's turning for a couple of reasons. Number one, manufacturing is extraordinarily cyclical. Uh, we see data right now that's as weak as it's been since the coming out of the recession. But you've had the Boeing 737 MAX, which is hard aircraft. You've had the GM strike. You've had an inventory correction you need to work through. As we move into 2020, cyclically, manufacturing, in my opinion, is poised to have a nice recovery, and CapEx is going to go up with it. And by the way, people talk about uncertainty as if this is something this is like a new concept. <laughs> Companies may actually do more if they have to possibly plan for a couple different outcomes. So CapEx, to me, will do okay. It may not be great, but it's going to do okay. How about the consumer? I mean, the argument has always been that the December 15th tariffs would hit the consumer the hardest. And the consumer has been sort of the... The powerhouse yeah. well, of you this just U.S. My economy. point, Melissa, why the tariffs aren't such a big deal. Uh, to me, it's prudent policy. It's the only negotiating tool we effectively have. We're not going to go to WTO and, and, and uh, you know, adjudicate that debate for years on years. I mean, it's the only approach we have is this approach, and I would think it's I think it's working quite well. So no, no impact. No, I don't. No impact is too strong. Very little impact. To me, this has always been about the Fed. The Fed has been way too aggressive in tightening monetary policy. The Fed has reversed. I'd actually didn't like to cut again, uh, because to me, if you look at the two-year note and the Fed funds rate, there's not enough of a spread. If you look at the Fed funds rate to the ten-year note, there's not enough of a spread. So to me, the Fed has to still cut rates. I'd like. I don't think they'll do it. I'd like them if they did it. So we'll see. But, I mean, look, the Fed funds rate at 1.63%. Find a 10-year sovereign yield in the world that's yielding at that level. No one. Nowhere. So that's, that's to me, is the story. It's all been about the Fed. Let me just push back on the consumer a little bit. Some of the, the uh, tariffs until now have been absorbed at various places along the line, whether it's manufacturing or the retailer or a currency shift. That won't continue to be the case if we do see an implementation of higher tariffs. And it'll be so visible to the consumer in an iPhone, for example, if that were to happen. Possibly, Karen. Companies ought to be more efficient, more productive. To me, this is a great excuse for companies who never would have been able to rejigger their supply chains outside of China without the president effectively giving them cover to do so. And, and this is, to me, longer term, I think is excellent in trying to diversify your distribution chains, your production channels, and, um, and we'll see what happens. But again, as I said at the outset, you're looking at a very, very small number. And, and to me, that it just doesn't add up to a whole lot. The underlying trend of productivity is more important. You've had a lot of business deregulation. Some of that stuff takes time. I mean, we're trying to judge the tax cut in 17 in real time. Give it time. If this thing is in place for a while, the supply side effects will be quite positive, in my opinion. But we'll see. So the bottom line is if, if, if you believe that the markets are reacting to what the impact of a prolonged trade war, i.e. tariffs, could have on the economy, the markets have got it wrong. No, I think the markets have gotten it right. I think the tariffs, that's the whole point, the tariffs have been oversold. We wouldn't have gotten to 3180 or whatever it was, 3200 on S&Ps, if it was all about tariffs. It's, it's been about the market realizing the Fed, which had overdone it, reversed, okay. stimulating financial conditions. And the variable, to me, that's the most important that I'd watch from a trading uh-huh. perspective. Look at the yield curve. The yield curve 
uninverted, which is good. It didn't get too negative. It didn't stay negative for a long time. But, Melissa, I want to see that curve steeper. That's where the Fed needs to remain dovish. All right. Great to have you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. So I watched your show. The the Fed. It's all about the Fed. And I think a lot of people on this desk have said that, probably correctly. I mean, I watched your show, The Power Lunch, from, from, from one to two. Uh, it, two to three. Two to three. That too. I was in Central Time. I was in Chicago when I watched it. But you had on an analyst that talked about 175 for earnings for the S&P, and he thought the right multiple in this environment is 20, 3,500 S&P 500. I don't know how you get there, but I think probably Joe, I'm not bringing him back, but I think Joe's in that camp. No, you're not allowed to come back. Because you're not here. He introduced him and brought it back. I love that. Anyway, I'm not nearly as bullish as Joe is, but I can understand how you can make some of those arguments. I think December could be uh, painful, and I think December 15th is going to be painful. Pete, December painful? I'd say you're, you're right, and I think we'll see a big spike in vol, but I think that might actually create another opportunity, another time to actually step in, because I agree with Joe. The only He's thing back. we might disagree back, with... folks. Ah, well, he brought me back in because of God. <laughs> but the reason I, that I believe in what Joe's saying is, I think there will be that, that reaction, though, because we, we've almost told everybody, hey, if it doesn't happen December 15th, man, this is really, this is going to be something else. So it's going to prepare folks for that big whoosh to the downside that I think will be an opportunity to buy. Today... We never got much above 17 on the VIX. And if you think about it, yes, it's coming from 11 and a half, but it, it should have gone towards 20 today when we were down plus 400 points to the downside and we weren't even there and we started recovering almost immediately. Still ahead, we just got results from two big software stocks. The group's been on its tear this year. But coming up, you'll hear from one top analyst who says the sector could start to slow down. And later, we're tracking the sell-off. We'll break down the key market levels you need to watch. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on two big software names, Salesforce and Workday, both dropping in the after hours despite beating on both the top and the bottom lines. Salesforce conference call is just getting underway. We're listening to that call. We'll bring you any headlines as they do develop. In the meantime, let's talk software in general because it has been a big bright spot in the market. The IGV ETF that tracks the space is up more than 30% this year. But our next guest says the rally could be running out of steam. Let's bring in Jared Weisfeld, the managing director and tech sector specialist at Jefferies. Jared, great to see you again. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. So what is it about software? I mean, is it the valuations themselves or is it the environment of the markets? Why? Sure. So uh, it's certainly a better time than when I was here last was basically the height of the SaaS crash. I remember it was ServiceNow transitioning their CEO management team and the IGV has been on an incredible run, almost back to 2.30 as of Friday. And similar to the last guest's point, I thought he brought up a really interesting topic. You now have the 10-year back at 1.7%, which is really important for this sector because in general, so much of the terminal value of all of these high growth companies is uh, so much of the value is derived from that terminal value. So it's incredibly sensitive to interest rates. So now that you've got the Fed playing ball and you've got the tailwind of the tenure at 1.7%, it's a natural tailwind for the group. So heading into calendar 2020, when you think about what happened into Q4 2018, it's on a lot of investor minds, given that the stock market was in a precipitous drop every single day. So now heading into 2020, you think about the tailwinds that we had in Q1 earlier this year, when the tenure was basically going from 3.2%, now down to one7 on a second derivative basis, when you think about just the rate of change, it's going to be less accommodative. So op- optimistically, you, your prior guest thought that maybe we'd have some cuts, and to the extent that happened, that would be a boon for the rest of the market. But I think 
between that and lapsing the Trump tax cuts, which was effectively, I wouldn't say artificial demand, but you had one-time benefit that helped boosted all of the spend. I think you you're, you're have more headwinds than not, and all of these names are also trading at very high valuations. You know, you're talking about companies that are trading at 20 to 25 times revenues, not necessarily 20 to 20 times earnings. So you're pricing in a lot of goodness in these names. So it's just something to watch heading into calendar 2020. How do you think about the China trade war and the impact on your sector? For sure. So I'd say the interplay between software and semiconductors is probably the most topical across any investor that I speak with, and I think rightfully so. When you think about the most sensitive from an economic perspective, semiconductors are clearly at the heart of that. And despite all of these trade tensions that we've seen, we've seen the semiconductor index, the SOX, break out to all-time highs. And even this evening, you're seeing microchip after hours positively pre-announcing, talking about the high end of their range. They're giving positive commentary on bookings. So it's just interesting, especially relative to what Joe was saying before, with despite these trade headlines, you're actually seeing positive uh, economic developments from a cyclical perspective. And a lot of these end markets that have effectively already been in a recession in calendar 2019, think industrial, think automotive, you now have really easy comps heading into calendar 2020. So you're obviously pricing in a lot of goodness with respect to semiconductors, given where the forward multiple for the group is sitting. So I think you need to be cautious in terms of what you're thinking about. Um, but in general, I think, um, I think it's, it's clearly the most economically sensitive for the group. But you're seeing some of these companies power through a lot of these headwinds. Okay, Jared, we're going to have to leave it there. Sure. I will see you next time. Appreciate Jared it. Thank Weisfeld. you. So Adobe is a name we talk about all the time. I think it finds its way onto that list. It's a big valuation. You know, Jared mentioned valuation, 32 times forward earnings. But here's a stock that you find it back at this 305 level which was a prior high. I mean, this, to me, if you want to play this stock, I think we're at the cusp. Either we're going to break out significantly to the upside, or we're going to have a double top, not like unlike what we're seeing in Salesforce, which you just mentioned before. So if you're looking for a stock that I think is really interesting and the risk-reward sets up well, just watch and see how Adobe trades against this 304 level the next couple of days. I think it's going to show its hand pretty quickly. Some of these SaaS stocks are just priced for perfection. And you look, I know we'll get to it further, but Workday, great numbers, still not good enough to keep that, you know, stratospheric multiple. I would be afraid to step in here. Pete, how are you feeling about the chips? I actually am very confident in a lot of those names, actually, still, even though some of them are under the upside. Now, some of them have great balance sheets. Some of them have, you know, you look at the PE levels. As a matter of fact, late in the day today, I bought some Seagate, which is sort of in that world or whatever, sort in, in their own way. But I, I thought that was really interesting. I look at the, a name like that. It's where it's trading in terms of a PE. It's nearly a single digit. And I think that Micron and some of the other names that I'm in, I, I'm still very comfortable holding on to these names right now. Well, if you think about the semis, look, as Jared pointed out, I mean, they've, they've bucked in the face of cyclical headwinds and they've outperformed and they've led the market. So what's the multiple you want to pay? And I mean, if you look at a Taiwan semi, which on some level is at least the way you could value the whole group. I mean, this is a company that I don't think is terribly expensive. So uh, and if you want to think about their role in, in kind of white labeling chips for the entire space, I think it looks pretty good. The bottom line here is I, I think, you know, Carter brought this up yesterday. You can give something back here in the semis and still be in that uptrend. And I think that was the key to that that analysis. And I think that's probably what we do. All right. For more on this afternoon's big earnings, you can head on over to CNBC.com. We've got a lot more Fast Money coming up. Take a look what's at what's on the docket. The latest blow in the trade wars rocking stocks today. But what stocks are poised to take the biggest hits? And later, options markets making some big bearish bets on the tech sector. We find out what they're saying. Fast Money returns after the break.
Welcome back to Fast Money. It was a rough day on Wall Street today, sell-offs smacking every sector of the S&P, except for the utilities and the REITs. Banks, consumer discretionary, energy, industrials, tech, all getting hit hard after President Trump suggested he might want to delay a trade deal with China until after the 2020 election. So if the trade war drags on for another year... Who's got the most to lose? Dom Chu is at CNBC headquarters with more. Hey, Dom. All right. So, Melissa, there's already some movement in some of these stocks and industry groups. There's jockeying by traders in some of the industries and companies that will be the focus of that next round of tariffs on Chinese-made goods imported to the United States. As usual, a laundry list of items, but a number of key product areas will get a lot more attention, along with the companies that are the most closely associated with them. So, for example, you've got smartphones part of that list, or as they are called, in that U.S. Trade Rep report, telephones for cellular networks or other wireless networks. Other impacted areas revolve around things like food items, also clothing, textiles, baby-related goods, sporting goods, toys, consumer electronics, you name them. Now, the team over at Strategus Research Partners has put together a list of 30 companies with significant amounts of business exposure to China, coupled with lobbying efforts with regard to China-U.S. trade policy. Apple has been one of those battleground stocks when it comes to tariffs, mostly for how adept it's been at getting exempt from import taxes. It's also on that strategist list, by the way. With regard to other tech companies, you've got semiconductor names like Intel and Applied Materials, also Micron on that list. PC and printer maker HP Inc. is on there as well, as is athletic shoe and apparel maker Nike and retail giant Walmart. So, Melissa, the closer and closer we get towards that December 15th tariff enactment date, those could be among the companies that see more market volatility and activity, up or down, depending on those progress of U.S.-China trade talks. And, Melissa, we know that these types of companies have been at the center of all of this for months, if not years now. Back over to you. It's interesting, Don, because that list might have the most impact dollar-wise uh, in terms of their business from the trade war, but they may be the best suited to navigate the trade war in terms of absorbing the costs or squeezing it down to their suppliers. That's a great point. And, and to, this, to that point, at this stage, Apple has been very good at navigating it. We've also seen Walmart uh, be able to do that better than m- many others as well. And that's maybe not just solely for its U.S.-China <laughs> trade policy, but also because of what it's been doing with its execution on its own company-specific initiatives. But a lot of these companies, when the larger they are, you've got to figure that they've got some way, some means to shift resources, shift kind of like those assets around to be able to either weather or adapt to the current environments that they're in. Nike is another one of those companies. I mean, obviously, a lot of goods out there made in the greater China region, they could be impacted a lot by those tariffs. Whether or not those stocks have been hit adversely because of it, yes, they've been hit, but not as hard as some others. So, yes, there could be some real haves and have-nots given the situation that's developing between the U.S. and China. All right, Dom, thank you. You got it, guys. Dom Chu, in the flesh. We've heard from several companies who say the trade war is impacting earnings, names like FedEx, Deere, Cisco, all citing China as a factor for weaker-than-expected results or guidance this past quarter. So if the trade war rages on for another year, could there be more pain ahead for these particular names as well as for the sectors that Dom had mentioned? Well, again, you know, back to Nike, you know, in the early, not even in the early stages, but somewhere midway and even three quarters of the way through what has been this trade war, we've heard Nike reiterate um, that their China business is alive and well. So, um, I, you know, as much as Apple is clearly exposed to China, the China exposure, I think, is something that was priced into the stock a year and a half ago. And, and in fact, China's Apple's re-rating has been something according to, to services and now some of their, their wearables. So um, I, I think we're going to follow that. I think the good news for stock pickers is that, You've seen separation between true trade war stocks and those that are not. 
I agree on Nike. Also, they have bargain. They have buying power, right? Mm-hmm. So they're a huge customer. They could be able to push back a little. One sector that I think is sort of interesting for its vulnerability is the luxury goods sector, right? So not only they have tariffs, but also they have Hong Kong, which is a huge market, and that is obviously in you know down 25 percent. And also that as if you if markets around the world go down. The buyers of their goods feel less wealthy, mm-hmm. and that's going to affect them as well. One thing I happen to notice, Bibles and rosary beads are exempted from any December 15th tariff. Good news, guys. Yes, you can pray for a halt <laughs> to the trade war. It is okay. good news. Is good. I mean, you look at me, I I mean, you're making it. fun of me. No, we're I not like my it. rosary beads. I have a beautiful pair of rosary beads actually made out of crushed rose petals, and they're very fragrant. That's very, that's very nice. Well, you brought it up. Not I did me. bring I it up. I brought it up. That's potpourri. Intel is an interesting Sorry. stock. Now, valuation, it's very compelling. Trades 11 and a half times yep. forward earnings. But go back and look at the stock in April. Had a huge move up to 59 and a half and failed. And it failed very quickly, and it traded down to 45 bucks. Well, the move recently from August is right back to this 59 level, and it's seemingly failing again. If what... Dom just talked about last for any prolonged length of time. Intel will absolutely trade back down to that 45 level, regardless of valuation. I think the, when you look at that list, though, that Dom put out there, I think the quality names aren't, they weren't the ones complaining about the trade war. And I think it comes down to, again, who really navigated well through this and who did not. And if you look at it, UPS did fine. FedEx blamed the trade war. I mean, you continue to go, you know, stock by stock through here, and you're going to find more and more who's blaming this on trade war, tensions, whatever it is, and who's sourcing properly, like Target and some of these places that are maybe already shifting some of at least as much as they can away from China to other parts of the world. But the question here at this point, Pete, is I think, you know, if you have a pairing like a FedEx versus UPS, you're thinking that FedEx could, is the rebound player, they're going to close the gap or whatever you want to say about FedEx. You know, at this point, if the trade war is prolonged, you say, you know what? I'm out. I, I can't wait for that bounce because they're out of, out of the FedExes of the world. Is that what you're right? Exactly. Yeah, of, right. These, of these stocks that have been hit. that have blamed. Right. It. Yep. Yep. They're, I would expect those if if this persists for a longer period of time. I would think that those names that already have somewhat failed in this deal in this last quarter. They're going to be the ones that go down the fastest, I would think. I, I, but if you talk about a FedEx versus UPS, I know you're using this as an example, but when you have a relative value trade, you truly have opportunities to take advantage of, of this volatility. And I think in FedEx case, who reports on the 17th, the integration uh, across Europe is something that's been slowing the company down. I think you have an opportunity. I, I, I like FedEx here. All right. Coming up, it is the best-performing sector this year, but option traders are betting on a big tech takedown. We'll explain. Plus, we found a rare green arrow in today's sea of red, a stock Piper Jaffrey called a must-own. It is a name you know. We'll bring it to you when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Tesla CEO Elon Musk at the center of a big court case now underway in Los Angeles. Let's get to Jane Wells live in L.A. with all the details. Hey, Jane. Hey, he's on the stand right now. They're starting to get into the, the meat of the issue. In fact, uh, um, sorry about that. Hello, how are you? I thought I'd use the microphone. Uh, they, they, I ran out here. Uh, they were just asking him how he felt when he saw Vernon Unsworth on CNN um, say you can stick your submarine where it hurts. And he said that would be, uh, it was wrong, insulting, and so I insulted him back. And that's key, that word insult. Here's what's interesting. Take a look at the video. I haven't seen this before. The defendant in this case, Elon Musk, did not show up in court until 
after the jury had been selected and after opening statements. He didn't even enter the courtroom until he was called to the stand. Unsworth's attorney is walking him through the timeline of his involvement in the Thai cave rescue in 2018 when he put that sub over there by SpaceX, which didn't do anything. And then Unsworth went and ridiculed it on TV. And then Musk had the tweet calling him a pedo guy. Now that's the key. He called him pedo guy. The judge has told the jury they're going to have to decide whether a reasonable person could construe that statement, given the context, as a factual statement accusing him of being a pedophile, that it was false, that Elon Musk did not take enough care to determine whether or not it was true or false. And even if the jury agrees with Unsworth, to win money from Elon Musk, he has to prove he's been damaged. Listen. How has it damaged you? Well, I've come 5,000 miles just to get a, a verdict that it's not true. Uh, the cave expert says the tweets have shamed him, mortified him. He feels isolated. He's seeking at least 75 grand, which is really the threshold for federal court. He's also filed a suit in the U.K. The jury is made up of only eight people, three men, five women, mostly college educated. They're watching Musk closely. They're watching the attorney. Uh, the judge thinks this case could last maybe the week. Uh, there are is at least one Tesla owner, I think, on the jury. A few people had to be excused because they follow Elon Musk on Twitter and they have a very good opinion of him. By the way, I should tell you, when he went into court for about the first 10 minutes on the stand, this was his body language um, and that he was drinking water occasionally like this. And then he finally he finally uh, relaxed a little bit. Guys, that's not good body language. That means you've like you're keeping something from no, people when no, you cross no. your arms, right? So you never see us do well, that. Well, you know, it's also him. <laughs> it's it's him. Yeah, yeah. And Jane, just just to be clear, I mean, Unsworth is is seeking what seventy five grand. It's, that it's not is like really he's trying to big a big payday. No. Well, he's also seeking punitive damages, which could be much higher. If if they find actual damages, if they find for him, they could also uh, punish Elon Musk. Uh, by um, uh, with punitive damages, which could be much higher. But the interesting thing is, Unsworth had earlier been seeking financial documents from Elon Musk to find out exactly how much he's worth. Something Musk has been fighting and says is unnecessary. Hmm. Another billionaire not wanting to let you know exactly how much he's worth. <laughs> Jane, thank you. Jane Wells. Uh, sticking mm -hmm. with Elon Musk here in Tesla, a rare green spot in today's big sell-off. Piper Jaffray upping the price target on the stock to 423. That is nearly 26% higher than current levels. Piper says Tesla's high-volume manufacturing and cautious capital spend make it a must-own stock. Take a look at the shares over the past year. Does this logic hold water? Pete, what do you say? You know, it's really interesting because they really kind of avoided really talking about the financial side of this whole thing in this update that they gave. But they've been right, Mel. I mean, this is a 373 that's up to a 420. Yeah. So they've been right. They've been riding this wave. They think there's more in front of it. So I give the, the analyst credit for that. But I, I still look at this as, hey, look, it does still come down to the numbers. And you've got to start crunching these numbers down. Yeah, they're getting a little bit more cost effective, a little more efficient. They're working with China and all the delivery. But that's something that's still, that we're still talking about 2021, 2024, and here we are in 2019. So we're looking way out into the future. So I'm still not convinced that I need to be in Tesla right now from the positive side, despite this great analyst write-up. Deutsche Bank, by the way, had a note out apparently today, it's on CNBC.com, that uh, Tesla would start producing the Model Y, that crossover vehicle, in the first quarter of this coming year. 
really? first quarter 2020. That's very soon. Well, I mean, talking and praising cautious capex for a lot of companies, I think, is, is the right thing to do. But for, for this company, it looked like they were pulling in capex because they had to. I still think that that's a very big issue. So Pete says they're not talking about the balance sheet. I agree with that. But they, they make it very clear. We're switching to a DCF approach to valuing the company. What that means, folks, is that you can play around with a lot of terminal values of businesses that are worth anything right now. And they pretty much said that. And that, that by the way, it's, it's, a, it's, it's not uncommon. It's what a lot of analysts do. So I think you know, that's part of understanding where this number comes from. They've suddenly added a long-term enterprise value to, uh, to China, for example, that they can now put into their, into their estimates. So I think that's you know, part of this. I think that one of the one of the prongs of the Tesla short is that they're going to blow through cash. They need more cash. Right. One of the positive effects of the stock going up is a real ease of raising money. They've done it before. They've done it 15, 17, 19, raised money. They could do it again. So if that's part of your thesis. And that goes away. And that goes away. That's a little harder. All right. Up next, tech stocks under pressure today. And options traders are betting things are about to get a whole lot worse. For this year's best performing sector, we'll break down the action. And later, one top technician is laying out the make or break market levels every investor needs to watch. We've got that and more when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast. Quick recap of the big news of the hour. Alphabet CEO Larry Page stepping down from the role. Google CEO Sundar Pichai to take over. Co-founder Sergey Brin will also step down as president of Alphabet and the role will be eliminated. Page and Brin saying in a blog post, it's a natural time to simplify management structure. And let's take a look at the stock and how it's doing. It's up uh, by about eight-tenths of a percent. It's been there pretty much all aftermarket session long. Sticking with tech here, the sector tumbling in today's market sell-off. The FANG stock's falling hard. Apple bearing the brunt of the beatdown and only Alphabet escaping in the green into the after-hour session after President Trump hinted that there may be no deal until after the 2020 presidential election. And in the options market, traders are betting things could get a whole lot worse for big tech before they get better. Options play chief strategist Tony Zhang is over at the Plasma with the options action. Tony, what are you seeing? So big day in XLK today. Now, this ETF generally doesn't trade a lot of option contracts, only about 6,000 contracts a day. But today we saw about four times the average volume and puts outpace calls three to one. Now, if we look at the options volume today, what's interesting is that at the open, we saw a lot of really far out of the money December puts being sold. As things stabilized around lunch, we saw 82, 85 puts being sold. But as we got towards the close, we saw this really large December uh, 82 and a half puts trade at 960 contracts for 56 cents. This trade has a break-even price of $81.94. That's implying a 4.5% move to the downside. That's a fairly bearish trade. So if we take a look at the chart here, what we see is that we've had this pretty large rally since the beginning of October up to that $88 level. And to my eye, I see about an $83 technical level that just corresponds with that 50-day moving average. And I think this trader is betting for a quick bounce to the downside. All right, Tony, thank you. Tony Zhang. For more options action, be sure to check out the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time here on CNBC. All right, coming up next, we've got the big levels to watch right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Trade trouble spooking stocks Tuesday. The S&P 500 down for a third day in a row and at its lows of the day, falling to its lowest level in a month. So is this setting up to be a dreadful December for Wall Street? Let's go off the charts of Todd Gordon of TradingAnalysis.com. Todd, what are you looking at? 
Hey, Melissa, no, I don't think this is going to be a repeat of last year. I think we are in a solid technical uptrend here. This is the weekly S&P, a beautiful parallel channel here. As uh, Carter Worth would say, I don't draw the lines. The market draws the lines. Uh, we are still well above support. Uh, we, I still stand by Melissa. Uh, I do have a 4,000 target. Again, it could be two to three years down the line. I don't know when it's going to happen, but that's when the current market at its rate of trajectory will intersect resistance at the 4,000 mark. So I think we're fine. This is the weekly. Let's go down to the daily here. Um, we've broken above beautiful level. It's about uh, 30. 30 was resistance. Anything that was broken, we returned to the scene of the crime offer support. It's just a natural uh, kind of check back. Uh, anybody who's caught short will use that as a synthetic, synthetic level to cover, to buy. Pullback buyers will get in and hopefully momentum guys will as well, uh, carrying the S&P uh, to new highs. So I continue to be long in my portfolio stocks and options. I like it. Don't like the volatility the last couple of days, but um, the volume has not been excessive on the downside. Trading uh, about 80 million, 70 million SPY shares, which is very similar to what we've seen even on up days uh, over the last couple months. So today's volume was not excessive. We're still being led by technology. Um, some of the sectors that are leading are XLK, as Tony mentioned before, healthcare, uh, and also financials. So uh, by far right now, NASDAQ is outperforming the S&P that XLK continues to outperform. So this is the NASDAQ 100 up here. Relative to the S&P, you can see that we're moving higher. So that means NDX, SPX is moving up, which means NDX is outperforming. Uh, same thing. Uh, the 30-30 level in the S&P correlates to 80-30 in the NDX. So again, if we can go back, test it, I think it's a nice uh, entry point to resume the uptrend. All right. So, but Todd, for the S&P 500, we've got about 60 points to the downside before yeah. we make any real damage. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. It's right now. It's fine. I'm not saying we're going to get there. Um, I, I, you know, I do think that support continues to be uh, right in the zone. We don't need to wait. If you're looking to buy shares, if you're looking to add, volatility's up. And again, volume is not very large, so uh, don't wait for that exact level if you're looking to add. But I do think, from a seasonal basis, we should seasonality. We should rally into the end of the year. What would be some safe havens at this point in the markets? I mean, if you, if you chose to go that route. What's I mean, gold perk up today, for instance? Gold perked up. I mean, this was a pretty big move down in, uh, in bonds, up in rates. Uh, so no safe haven there. And again, if you look at the sector rotation, this rotation that we look at on a weekly basis, you've got technology re- leading, financials are coming in. I think at that XLF might be a good place to hide in uh, an increasing rate environment. So I would say look at some of the banks. That XLF has shown some good strength. Key. 60 S&P points gets you back down to sort of 30, 25, 30, 30, which is if you go back and look, that's where we topped out at the end of July. So we had that huge move up in July, then a subsequent sell-off. So it makes sense we do a back and fill to the 30, 30 level. That's where I think we're going. And quickly, Mm. what was the thing, a December to remember? It made me think of (laughs) a long December. By counting Long crows. December. Yeah. It's a good, it's a good oh, song. Me too. Average. No, stop no. it, Melissa. Stop it. Okay. But it is a no good way. song. And if our crack staff, is by the way, is that about? good, the outro or the intro of the next oh, block, they'll be playing that. Call it wow. saying it. Really um, would financials be a place to hide in your view? Well, it's interesting because if, if you look at stocks that kind of fell out of bed today, you could look at a Bank of America, you could look at Apple, and you could look at you know, either Trade War or we talked about, you know, Two's Tens is now 17 bips, has been flattening. You had a 15 basis point pullback on the 10. Your banks have been incredibly sensitive to that. Uh, you know, that's really what you have to watch. I, I, I look at the 10-year chart, and if you want to follow those channels that are nice from the bottom up that these guys have been talking about, that's one that may be breaking down. And if that breaks down, that's not good for equities. All right. Our thanks to Todd Gordon, TradingAnalysis.com. Up next, Final Trades. 
MasterCard, which is a great name, but it's had a huge run tonight. They announced an $8 billion buyback and a 21% increase, I think it was, in their dividend. So I think the stock will be up tomorrow. I'm actually going to sell some calls against That's it. A it's a little bit rich. You know, the yeah, counting crows, what's that guy's name? With the, with the, yeah. He's not the Bill. most attractive guy. Yeah. Adam Dur- Adam Dur- 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 Dirt. They did some incredible, just goes to show you folks at home, there's somebody for Shallow everybody. Him. I'm just saying. Final why trade, you, why are you putting this guy down? Take two interactive. TTW had a big day today and a lousy tape. See you back here tomorrow at five more fast Mad Money. Jim Cramer starts right now. <laughs> Woo, doggy.